Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Okay, welcome to the second encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado here with Jack Crittenden. How's it going, Jack? It's going well, Rory. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you again. So I wanted to continue, pick up a few threads, three threads specifically from our last conversation, maybe um, weave them together a bit and build on them and see where we end up. So some of the topics that stuck out to me and that I wanted to continue with were pertaining to what I called last time the epistemic divide that we talked about sort of the gulf in understanding of the universe between Trumpsters and non-Trumpsters, let's say. Um, but we can flesh that out in greater detail. And then uh, connected with that, I think will be cancel culture, which I know you had mentioned you have an interest in. And I think, uh, I don't know if we talked about an example perhaps of cancel culture that I myself engaged in. Did we talk about how I tried to get Henry Kissinger banned from uh, speaking uh, at my. <laughs> you and I have talked about it perhaps through texts or emails. I think email uh, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But that would be a good topic to discuss. Okay. So we can, so that's, that's on the table. Um, and then the other two were, uh, you had mentioned last time uh, coming up in the sixties, late sixties at, uh, in college and whatnot, and you alluded to psychedelics, and that's something I think that we have in common, perhaps usage or familiarity or interest in psychedelics. And my interest in conversationally is like exploring if and to what extent uh, psychedelics affect political ideologies and senses of identity in important ways. So that's one thread. And then the third thread mm. was your uh, sort of uh, how should I put it? You reacted negatively when I brought up sort of the golden rule. I think you might've said, you think it's bullshit. And that, that surprised me because, well, we can talk about why, but yeah. So that, those are the three threads. Was there anything you wanted to continue with um, separate from those? I had uh, marked down as well, the epistemic divide. I wanted to get your take on that, especially why why you refer to it as the epistemic divide. Sure. Um, and then I had a couple of other questions. One was related to, or one is related to your Substack page. Mm. Is that how it's referred to, a page? I guess. I, it's new to me. It's a new yeah. platform, really. Substack page, I think is right. Okay. So there was something on there that caught my attention that I wanted to ask you about. Sure. Uh, do you want to begin there and see if we then wend our way into one of your topics? Uh, sure. Okay. So we touched on this uh, at our last encounter. <laughs> and you had spent a little time discussing, we had both spent time discussing political ideologies and our own political orientation. But 
uh, and you describe yourself as an anarchist and went into some some discussion about why that was important for you, what you hope to accomplish by saying it, what it means to you to call yourself an anarchist, and then discussed uh, the anecdote about you running into a group of people who had surrounded your car and started rocking it when they found out you were an anarchist, <laughs> attempt to right. overturn it, although you weren't in it, so it kind of defeated the purpose. Uh, but on your Substack page, you describe yourself as an anarcho, anarcho or, or anarcho communist. <laughs> And I want yeah. to know what what uh, you want to convey by calling yourself that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think you know I vacillate a little between libertarian socialist and anarcho communist. Again, I don't like labels either. Like we we both talked about that last time um, because they're too rigid and also it gets gets messy and trying to communicate with different audiences, different labels, but. For me, with anarcho-communism, uh, some of it has to do with the sort of transgressiveness of those terms, like I talked about last time, as opposed to like your approach of sort of couching your politics in small d democracy to be sort of maybe inviting or less threatening to folks. I, I want to use terms that are striking um, because I think it has a certain effect. Now, granted, as I mentioned before, it can repel people, but I think it can also entice people, activate people's curiosity, especially like when I spoke with those folks that surrounded my car and slashed my tires. Um, you know, they, I think the- the Us exercising the golden rule. Ex <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Actually, I did have a flat tire at that time. Did I tell you that? That's why I was going out to my car was I had a flat tire that I had to fix. Did they notice? Uh, no, they hadn't yet. Did you um, point it out? I did. And that's how I finally got rid of them. I was like, look, you know, my rim's going to bend here. I got to get the fuck out of here. They didn't offer to help you fix your flat tire? They did actually. They were very polite, but I was I was kind of sick of them, and I had that fix a flat stuff in my trunk already, so I was kind of good to go. But um, what was I saying? So the oh yeah, so the dissonance I think sort of almost cognitive dissonance that people experience, especially if they're coming from a place where they might be, um, you know in their mind they're opposed to something like anarchism or communism, and then I engage in conversation with them. And, you know, at least at first, I'll try to be nice and non-threatening, et cetera, you know. Uh, and so I think that that serves that educative function, perhaps. But but so that's sort of performative in terms of the content for me of anarcho-communism. I really do value the stated principles and goals of a communist society. I mean, some of the two sort of guiding quotes for my political philosophy come from Marx. And one of them you dropped it towards the end of your what hath Trump brought. I finished that, by the way, so we can talk about some of that, your ideas for reconstitution, um, which I find compelling, but um, that the, the free development of each depends on the free development of all, right? From, right? And then also from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Those are sort of, you know, um, bright lights in terms of what I seek out in political or social arrangements. And so I'm not, I'm not wedded to any particular 
um, instantiation of communism. Like I'm not saying I want a central centralized, a planned economy, totalitarian, you know, state or whatever. In fact, I, I would prefer the opposite of that. But uh, for me, that's, that's the heavy lifting I think that communism is, is doing. And it's also important, I think, to really name that which stands in my view as being most sort of diametrically opposed to the corporate capitalism that we exist under today and the corporatocracy that we're ensconced in, you know, so right. stateless, moneyless, propertyless, classless society. So does that right. begin to answer your question or is there anything else? Uh, yes, it does. I think that's helpful, but it raises uh, an ancillary question which is that you have what appear to be two uh, different, well, let me, not say, let me not say different because they may not be in your mind, mm. but what appear to be two distinct descriptions, one you call libertarian socialist and the other you called anarcho-communist. Are you saying those two things are similar, the same, different? I think they're both similar and different. Uh, but significantly overlap in ways that I find them to be mostly interchangeable. I think in my mind, at least libertarian socialism, the sort of bedrock for that or the central, the centerpiece of that is anti-authoritarianism and anti-hierarchical anti arrangements. Um, and I think that over it overlaps in, significant, in a significant way with the goals of communism. But uh, I think a, liber a libertarian socialist could probably, I mean, there's a thousand different, you know, subgenres and subspecies of both of these, right? But you could, um, I think libertarian socialism allows for a more inclusion of markets uh, and a market style arrangement that may uh, sort of ape capitalist markets in some ways. Whereas communism obviously has a stronger emphasis on uh, the transition away from a uh, capitalist political economy. But yeah, maybe I'll pause there for a second because my hunch is you feel like there's a incompatibility or an irreconcilability between those two. Is that right? Between Not necessarily. Okay. No, I, I think it depends uh, on how you want to deal with, handle, or define the terms. Mm. And you're pretty clear in this conversation, for example, on how how those two things, those two ideologies, those two descriptors come together for you. I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think for me, the issue is that you are you are using terms that people may have some uh, inchoate or or some nascent understanding of or they have their own understanding of the terms, often not good, <laughs> uh, but and that can lead to problems, right? How can you be a libertarian and be a socialist? That doesn't make any sense. But of course, you're doing that, as you say, at least as a performative invitation. Yes. Anarcho-communist, I think, might have more of a, I don't want to call it a conventional history because nothing about the term is conventional. <laughs> Uh, but but it might be something a term that people have an easier time grasping. I'm I all agree. for introducing confusion 
so that people will, you hope, take the time to ask you to help them sort this out. In other words, I don't think if you say you're a libertarian socialist, people can dismiss you. If you say you're an anarcho-communist, I think they they can, only because they're mm. latching onto communism, mm. and that, that I think is is problematic. Yes, I think Wait, that's my wife. Problematic because the association with communism is not going to be an association with Marx. It's going sure. to be association with the Soviet Union and the uh, People's Republic of China, which has elements in it that you might very well want to embrace. But I think it's easy for people to say communism equals the Soviet Union equals Stalin equals the gulag. Right. And that's that's pretty much what they do, um, and the anarch, anarcho or anarcho term doesn't help. <laughs> doesn't help. Doesn't help move them off that position. No, yeah, that uh, may be that may be right, uh, and I think that's that speaks to sort of the uh, differentiation of instruction for audiences, right? So, like people, and I think there's a generational divide here as well. Like people in in roughly your generation and older are, uh, they came up, they grew up in that Cold War mentality where communism equals the Soviet Union, and I don't know that that's so much the case for people my age and younger, especially younger. Um, there's a there's a pretty strong emergent leftist streak among the Zoomers. Uh, and I mean, how can how could there not be because they're watching the fucking world collapse around them as a, you know, megalomaniac game show host became president and ripped the country apart. <laughs> so you, you're talking about Biden. <laughs> no, Trump. <laughs> no, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, now Biden is is, a you know, shambling, the shambling zombie corpse of neoliberalism. You know, he's not much better. But but to the, the more to the substance of what you were saying i think there's i think there's some significant truth in that some folks will immediately be repelled or double down on their pre-existing assumptions about labels like anarchist communist anarcho-communist etc and in one sense i say good fuck them like i don't care uh but of course i want to be able to reach people too and that for me is where everything beneath the surface of the labels comes into play, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. also just not using them. But I, but I, 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 I have it, it prominently featured on my Substack page right now, and I'm going to keep that direction at least for a while as a sort of branding, as a sort of planting of a flag, right? You, if you're going to stand somewhere, you can't stand everywhere else, you know, so to speak. Like I have to um, sort of announce my position understood and if you're going to announce it by using terms political terms with which people are i'm going to say familiar that's not what i mean terms that people have heard i mean it's coming down to that it's not that they understand the terms they have heard them right it seems to me the juxtaposition of libertarian and socialist is more grabbing than the term anarcho communist Mm. Uh, I mean, my issue with using the term communist is that you have really two stark choices. No, that's not true. You have, uh, ideologically speaking, two stark choices. 
One is the communism of the Soviet Union, which was then spread, uh, they hoped, across the world. The other is the communism of Marx, about which he wrote too little. Um, I don't because I don't know that if he, you know, he said uh, one cannot predict the soup kitchens of the future. Right. right? He he didn't want to get involved in trying to predict what lay out a blueprint of what society, a future society, was going to look like after the proletarian revolution. And I, I mean, think he the last thing he wrote was a short note saying I'm not a Marxist. Right? I'm not a Marxist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because of what had happened to the movement and, and what people were saying that it meant to be a Marxist. Uh, so the reason I said they're ideologically different is that you have this uh, totalitarian system in the Soviet Union versus the idealistic system of Karl Marx. There's a middle, uh, well, it's not really even a middle, there's a, there's a different position, which is the communism of the People's Republic of China. Which, and, and maybe the communism of uh, Cuba. Yes. Where it is, it is easy for both sides to pick out their either least favorite element of it or their most favorite element, element of it, right? The free healthcare in, in Cuba, the uh, ability of the Chinese to pull a vast amount of their population out of poverty. Right. Uh, by introducing capitalist elements, but keeping a command economy. I mean, so so it's uh, it, that's something to play with. Mm. Right. So I understand why you want to use the term. At least this is my position. Right. I can un in understanding why you might want to use the term, but also understanding that that it's the term is problematic. For me, the libertarian socialist is a little more uh, attention grabbing. Mm. Why do because you say that? Well, because the the strand of libertarianism that we see uh, most strongly in politics is the brand that's associated with the conservative movement, right? <laughs> which really begins with Ronald Reagan, the conservative, the libertarian conservative, or libertarian Republican. So you've got that side counterposed with the idea of socialism, which is obviously has nothing to do with the Republican. Republicans or with Reagan at all. So that's for me is grabby. <laughs> what's, <laughs> what do you, what's this about? So that's, that for me would be the entree. The anarcho-communist, I might go, man, I don't know what that's about. I'm leaving that alone. I don't care. <laughs> that's fair. I, I, I uh, have thought about this from multiple perspectives, including the one you just laid out. And yeah, well, I'm not... let me, let me just interrupt by saying, at, at no time would I ever think there was something that you were using that you had not thought about deeply <laughs> because I know you and I know you, you do. That's fair. I appreciate that. And uh, I guess so. And I, there has been some tension for me because I agree with you about the grabbiness of something like libertarian socialism. But part of my fear is that there's a fairly large short sort of contingent of, uh, American libertarians, the kind you were just alluding to, the conservative libertarians. Um, I see you leaning back and forth trying to get your camera I'm, back and I'm, focus. Yes, I'm, I'm faded. Hold your hand up close to it. I, that's worked for me. And then Close to the camera? Yeah, and then kind of, because it'll reset maybe. Or not. You can mess with it while I talk. But um, Okay, that's what I'll be doing. 
my issue is that there's, as I was saying, a fairly large contingent of capital L libertarians, American style corporatists is what they are, corporate bootlick bootlickers, right? They they claim to be opposed to the state, but they substitute their ob obsequiousness to the state for you know servility to corporations. So uh, I don't want to be even remotely confused with something like that. But at the same time, you might say it it may draw some of those folks in sort of as a trick almost <laughs> uh, and get them exposed to things they that might change their their mind. Yes, as I said, I, I think the uh, the juxtaposition is grabby. But I am, I personally am dismissive of the, of the adjective libertarian. Yeah. It has no magic and no pull for me. Same. Uh, and yet you use it. <laughs> I use it. Well, that's why, that's why I settled on anarcho-communism, right? In the, but I will use libertarian socialist at times, primarily for people who are already know what it is. Uh, because it's most prominently associated with Chomsky and I think Bookchin to a lesser extent in the US. But my understanding of libertarianism, the sort of etymology of it is that that was the French term for anarchism, like Proudhon and others used uh, whatever, you know, and went from there and then it was co-opted. But- Okay. No? <laughs> Maybe no, I- that is not a part of the libertarian history that I know anything about. Okay. But uh, that's even more remote and obscure than Marx's understanding of what communism is. Yes. So, okay. But again, I, it's, it's the juxtaposition that you want to use as a way of, of gaining attention to a term that has uh, meaning for you as a way of, sort of prying open people's heads. Excellent. I'm, I'm all for that. All right. Good. So settled. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> okay. Done and dusted, as they say. Um, but thank you for pushing me on that because it is something, as I said, I've sort of have been wrestling with and that I sort of change depending on my audience. So yeah, uh, it is what it is, I guess. But let's let's talk about something i wanted to talk about well that we both wanted to talk about was the epistemic divide well you had already asked why am i calling that maybe we'll calling it that maybe we'll get to that really i was just calling it that off the top of my head but i think i think it has some merit as a term but um well let, let's start there okay all right what is it what is it what does the term mean for you it means i i suppose hey that there is something of a bright line that has emerged between i think two prevailing camps and in america right politically speaking and it has it became personified through the person of of donald trump and the ascendancy of his political uh, career, I guess, and the movement that sort of followed him, if we want to call it a movement, when we saw it with the emergence of terms like fake news, 
alternative facts, etc. And so when I say epistemic divide, I mean there are some folks on one side of this bright line who perceive reality in a way that is qualitatively different from the people on the other side and irreconcilable with, such that these two groups can observe one and the same set of empirical facts or you know, objective reality and come up with vastly different interpretations. And those interpretations are so different that and opposed in such a way that they produce conflict, political conflict. So that's that's my working definition, I guess, off the off the top of my head. Does that make sense? Yes. I disagree, <laughs> but it makes sense. Well, if, okay. So in what way do you disagree? Because it seemed to me in some of what you were saying in What Hath Trump Brought that you might agree. Like, for example, you talk about um, people that are anti-science or uh, rejecting science, especially in light of COVID. Uh, okay. I, I don't, again, this, this becomes so academic and... Uh, <laughs> potentially pedantic, that I, I hate to introduce this line of inquiry, but it's the use of the term epistemic. Okay. Um, now, that may be a term of art for you that has a meaning separate from the way I understand the term, which I would want to link to epistemology and the understanding or study of knowledge. Yes. And the reason I hesitate to use it in the context that you're using it in is that I would be hard pressed to describe what one side of this divide describes as knowledge mm. or knowing. They seem to me to be far closer to what in the 19th century was called the know nothing party. Sure. Yeah. And proud of it uh, because their interpretation doesn't rest on anything except the ability of the group to create narratives out of whole cloth. There's no grounding there. I don't know how you would get a grip epistemologically on what they're suggesting. <laughs> so the divide, it seems to me, is ideological. The divide is value-based. Even that's a stretch. But I just don't see that it's epistemic. I guess that that's where I'm halting a little bit. That's fair. I guess part of the reason also, I mean, I think I agree with you that uh, if you just barely scratch the surface of what the people on one side of this divide are saying, you find nothing underneath. You know, they don't have reasons a lot of the time for what they believe. Uh, and if you press them on it very quickly, they sort of collapse um, into blubbering. But <laughs> but uh, I do think, I guess part of the reason why I, I used epistemic, and I'm open to revising revising that term, but I do think there's an important sense in which the sources of knowledge for both sides, even if we want to say that one side doesn't really have knowledge, they are receiving information that is affecting them in some ways and shaping their beliefs in some ways, even if it's very different from what's happening on the other side. So 
various conspiracy theories, the entire emergent uh, conservative sort of media, media ecosystem. Obviously, Fox News was like the biggest purveyor of that for a long time, but now it has sort of shattered into, I don't know if you saw actually, but viewership for cable news has dropped off a cliff since Trump is gone across the board, including Fox News. But um, now there's like OAN and uh, Newsmax. Newsmax. Yeah. And so, yeah, so there's, and I mean, you know, you and I don't watch that except for maybe reconnaissance purposes at times. And I don't think there's much overlap between, let's say, your average Newsmax viewer and your average MSNBC viewer. Now, I have huge problems with MSNBC, uh, and I know that you do too. I mean, it's a massive corporation. They shill for the military industrial complex. They constantly have shady pieces of shit from the intelligence community, community so-called espionage community, on uh, to push you know, their official narratives. But they're, they're undoubtedly superior in terms of being based in reality to these other uh, networks. So that's part of it is the sources of information and the way that those sources shape the belief systems to whatever extent we want to call them that of both sides. Does that, does that help uh, sort of justify the use of epistemic or would you, would you still put it differently? No. <laughs> I, I, I would put it differently because uh, for me uh, to say that you have uh, a basis for knowledge means that you have some body of evidence upon which you are establishing and drawing conclusions. I don't believe that one side has a body of evidence. Now, that's not to deny what you said. There, they have sources of information. There is information mm-hmm. which, when viewers hear it, uh, will, will think that this is legitimate. This is probably true. And it now becomes knowledge for me to use going forward. But the sources of the knowledge are, as I said, uh, fictitious narratives or exaggerations that really don't hold up under scrutiny. Mm. So I have a hard time calling it knowledge. I have a hard time describing it as epistemological. Mm. Uh, but I do, do not deny what you said in response, which is that there, there are sources of information. I wouldn't deny that. Uh, but what's so behind just, them, they yeah. don't, what's behind them, that it, it, it's irrelevant. Yeah, you don't want to crown it basically with the term knowledge. It's, un, it's undeserving of that term is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it lacks what I think is the, the, the base of knowledge, which is evidence. Yeah. Regardless of what field you're looking in, whether it's political or cultural or scientific. I think, I I think that's fair. And I think I agree with you, I guess maybe, um, however, from their point of view, I think they would consider it to be knowledge. Do you think? Oh yeah. 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 As I said, they, they take the information that they glean from some outlet. And they crown it, as you said, with with the label of knowledge. And now knowing this, they go forward to uh, do battle 
against the opposite side of the divide. Right. Which is the lazy, liberal, woke, frightened, timid, confused left. Yeah. From their yeah. perspective. And, and I guess I think that's part of also why the communication breaks down and why I say it's a, br a bright line, because it's almost like these two groups. And I think there are subgroups within these two groups. And there's also groups outside of these two groups. But I think communication breaks down insignificant ex to a significant extent, you know, if, if you and this sort of manifests, I think, most clearly in the quote unquote cancel culture. Um, because the knowledge or information, <laughs> my cat has arrived. Um, the knowledge or information <laughs> that these people are trying to discuss or argue over, uh, the the term, the language that they use, the value laden language, especially that they use, uh, so it, it creates a situation where they're sort of talking past each other where they're almost speaking different languages, I think. So, and like I was saying, it sort of manifests, I think in one very distinct form through cancel culture where you have uh, like the Dr. Seuss controversy recently where anyone, including Dr. Seuss himself, by the way, who revised some of these texts before he died in like the 1970s, um, any, any, I think any person who is based in evidence, as you're saying, can look at the images, especially in these Dr. Seuss books and say, yeah, this is, this is demonstrably racist. Seuss is calling these caricatures of Chinese people, Chinamen, and they have yellow skin and, you know, uh, uh traditional garb that's over, uh, exaggerated, etc. But on the other side, something very different is going on, right? It's like they're not, they don't even perceive, I, I really think that many of them at least do not perceive the, the racist content that is being perceived on the other side. And instead they view it, how would we put it, through, through a more almost egocentric lens where it's like you're taking or you're saying that something I like is bad. You're saying something that matters to me is evil or wrong and it's like they can't they can't excavate what lies beneath does that make any sense to you yeah 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 and in fact it it makes sense and it rings true although i i want to add to that a position i think you might agree with uh although i'm not sure so i i take the the purveyors of this information the talk show hosts on jock on shock jock radio on uh, fox oan newsmax i take them to be cynical that wouldn't include everybody because some of them might just be rock stupid but uh i think people like tucker carlson and laura ingram and hannity know full well that there are elements in some of Dr. Seuss's books that are racist and that the foundation, if not Dr. Seuss himself, recognized that and wanted to make some changes. 
but that's but, but that's even worse than the uh, Lumpkin Bumpkins who simply uh, listen to what Hannity and the rest of them say and think, oh yeah, Dr. Seuss is out. They're trying mm. to cancel Dr. Seuss, which is not what is happening at all. No. Uh, so for me, the harm is is deep because there is such a mass of people who accept that who don't look, as you said, don't excavate and look underneath, but the people who are purveying it, the creators, the originators of this information, I think know full well what they're doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and what's involved. I agree completely. I think that it's the difference between the propagandizers and the propagandized, right? Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. And I, I do think it's a deliberate strategy Oftentimes, I think sometimes it bubbles up a little somewhat organically, especially through the internet now and social media. And then it's probably latched onto by these propagandists rather than being created out of whole cloth, like, you know, Carl Rove style. But, um, but yeah, it's definitely. You mean, you mean that there's a, there's an element of truth to it? I mean, it, not necessarily truth, but that it it's coming from, I hate to even use this term here, but like the grassroots, it's like there's a decentralized recognition among, say, conservative, average conservative people, whether it's somebody on Twitter who makes a post, you know, who noticed like who the fuck ever noticed that the Seuss company, uh, you know, his like legacy publisher or whatever, put out a two paragraph press release saying that they had conducted a year long internal review and decided to cease publication of half a dozen children's books, right? Like somebody, somebody latched onto that. It could have been one of these propagandists on a network who has incentives to find that and amplify it. Or it may have come from some turd on the internet who posted about it and it went viral. I don't know. I don't know the, the sort of history. I'm just saying that it can come from the top or the bottom, I think. But what matters ultimately is that either way, it's seized by right. the people pulling the levers, you know, and it creates right. this whole non, this controversy, whatever. Yeah. And, and to bring that now to the left, mm. you have this incident, minor incident, as you pointed out, where the Seuss Foundation decides that six of their books, which are minor in comparison to the ones we know, the most popular ones, need to be pulled. Now, they could have said, we're going to revise them somehow, but maybe they felt that that was uh, to mess with Dr. Seuss and they didn't want to do it. Fine. So they're going to pull these. And as you said, somehow this bubbles up. Either somebody at the top gets a hold of it, or somebody at the bottom, as you said, somebody on the internet texts someone, it, it comes to somebody's attention, right? So I imagine there is a, a, a boiler room of these young, eager conservatives looking through the internet constantly trying to find something like this, and they find dozens of them, and they send them up, and sometimes they catch on, sometimes they don't. Right, feed it to the outrage machine. Yeah, say so how can we how can we rile up the base? Oh, Dr. Seuss, everyone loves loves Dr. Seuss. Then it is uh, it is broadcast, it is propagated by uh, 
the news peddlers. Mm -hmm. But this is helped along in the Dr. Seuss case by the left or by the Democrats. So now you have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris not referring to any book by Dr. Seuss in National Read a Book Day, whatever the hell that thing was called. Oh, did they? So they the, deliberately removed him or something or just did well, include him? But he was not included, whether yeah. it was a deliberate, deliberate slight or what, whether it was an oversight. I don't really know, but it was noticed. Right. And it was then contrasted with Barack Obama, who referred to Dr. Seuss when when he was discussing books to read as an elementary school kid or or a kindergartner. I don't know who ever was reading these books. So the left left helped propagate it. So you could then point to it. Somebody like Hannity could go, aha, you see, <laughs> they know that this is damaging. You can't have Dr. Seuss. You've got to cancel all of Dr. Seuss. You've got to get rid of all of his books now. Yes. And that's, I think that speaks to the lack of nuance. That's one of the things that bothers me most about the so-called cancel culture and also sort of related social movements, even where I agree with them in significant part, like let's say um, the Me Too movement, for example, or, or other movements revolving around racial justice, et cetera. Uh, there can be at times on on one or both or all sides, a lack of nuance that obscures the reality and almost plays into the opponent's hand. So I think I think I agree with you. Like, you know, it's if you just read the press release from the Seuss Foundation, it's two, three paragraphs long. They tell you exactly why and that's it. You know, that so right. but as you say, it's cynically manipulated and then it's not uh, then this very superficial uh, conflict emerges that is really, it's, a, it's about nothing. It's, uh, it's completely manufactured, right? Right. Books go out of print all the time, especially 50-year-old children's books, right? So, but yeah, it's a, it would be a, that would be an example of a misstep, I think, for Biden or whomever to exclude Seuss, even if it's not, it's not like they removed him. It's just like they didn't include him or whatever. As you point out, it plays that way. Right. And it, and it feeds the flames. Right. So, yeah, I don't know, but I'm not at the same time, I'm not opposed necessarily to canceling quote unquote certain things or eliminating. I, I don't, I'm not in favor of censorship really, but uh, saying like, okay, we're going to reevaluate this, whatever X, Y, Z thing. And by our lights today, contemporary standards, uh, this is not something that we want to promote or, uh, or whatever, you know, I think, I think there's merit in that. I don't know if you agree, but, but I don't think that's not what many people mean by canceling. They mean sending something completely down the memory hole and making it forbidden. I think, I think it's that a, a literal cancellation, but there's another element to it, which is the inability for anyone uh, who has been criticized and uh, let's say has been canceled in a temporary way to ever redeem themselves but this is the i don't remember who originated the phrase 
where do I go to get my reputation back? Right. Not only where do I go, how do I do it? I mean, how, how do you, okay, you've been canceled. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I understand them. You, I hope you can explain the difference to me. Mm. I'm not sure I understand the difference between canceling and criticizing. If canceling means uh, trying to end whatever livelihood somebody has gained by uh, using <laughs> what call the weapons, using uh, what has been canceled. Uh, I guess that's what it is. I don't know. I, mean, I just got I got tied up there. I got tied up in my own <laughs> rumination own thoughts, trying to figure out what the hell cancel culture means. I, I think I think it is very sort of amorphous. I don't think, I don't know that anybody really knows what it means, and that's sort of also you know I again becoming too academic perhaps, but it's almost like an essentially contested concept. And I, and I think you see that played out by the way it's used by people on both sides of an issue or both or across multiple ideological divides. Like, for example, uh, Cuomo, my former governor, right? I've escaped him and now I'm under douchey's grasp. But um, right. <laughs> he, he has these scandals swirling around him, two, two big ones sexual harassment on the one hand and uh, hiding the nursing home deaths on the other and providing cover for nursing home corporations. And recently he said something to the effect of they're trying to cancel me that we have to wait for these reports. Cause apparently they're, you know, attorney general or whatever is conducting an investigation. He's saying, let there be, let there be conclusive evidence, et cetera, before, before you try to cancel me. So it's not just, although I would, I would categorize him as being, uh, you know, on the right, he's an establishmentarian, he's conservative Democrat, corporate Democrat, but uh, this is an example of a Democrat using the cudgel of cancel culture to sort of uh, as self-defense. So it's very fluid is what I'm getting at. And yeah. I, and I don't know that anybody has a, a clear sort of definition of what it means. It almost kind of means like, Hey, I don't like what you're saying about me, so stop saying it because it's not fair. Yeah, I, I, it brings me back to the position I, I, or the difference I discussed earlier between canceling and criticism. It seems right. as if anyone who uh, is criticized can then make the move, the maneuver to say, "Well, I'm being canceled." And you have the example of people who, in effect, have been canceled for past behavior. Mm. Kevin Spacey, for example. Right. Uh, I think, uh, what's her name? Felicity Huffman was canceled in the sense that she was removed from whatever show she was doing when the scandal broke that she was paying to get her daughter <laughs> into USC. Right, because uh, right. no one's ever done that before. <laughs> yeah, because that's never happened. Yeah, yeah that's she not just, the Ivy League's whole business model. <laughs> well, I was going to say, she, she, she forgot, talk about nuance, she forgot the legitimate way to buy your way into a university, and that is you build something, right? right? a wing of a library, <laughs> yeah, a, a new program, whatever it's going to be. That's how you do it. You don't bribe athletic coaches to pretend that you're son or daughter 
were on a team that of a sport they've never played and maybe in some cases had never even heard of. Yeah. Fencing comes to mind. They thought it was something you do with with uh, items that have been stolen. That's what fencing <laughs> is. Uh, okay, so but back to cancel culture. So yes, it becomes a convenient excuse when you have been criticized. So you have Cuomo on the one hand saying that he's been, they're trying to cancel him. You have Josh Hawley on the other hand saying they're trying to cancel him. When all it is, is they're pointing out these uh, horrific statements or actions they've taken right. as if they have no validity or have no bearing right, on, a, on a person's conduct, particularly in public office. Yeah, so it's just, it strikes me as just ludicrous. But again, I want to come back to this issue that what, what do we, once someone has been canceled, what did you just, how do you describe it down the rabbit hole? What did the you memory hole. <laughs> down the memory hole. Once that you want them out of sight, out of mind, right, you just want them gone. Right? That's cancel culture. Mm. Okay. Or yes. that's, can, that's canceling. Okay. I think, I think that could be one working definition. Yeah. It's like elimination of this person. Yes. Or thing. This, remove this person. Right. Okay. If, if we had, uh, if we were living in Orwell's 1984, they would go to the ministry of truth or whatever the hell it is. And they would be, <laughs> the history would be erased. This person right. didn't exist. There are no photographs of this person. There are no films. It's Kevin Spacey. He's gone. <laughs> yep. uh, well, he deserved it after that last video he put out. It yes. Just, yeah. yeah. I, I am also I mean, not he deserved saying, it for what he did. <laughs> yes. I'm also not saying there aren't people who, who don't deserve to be canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But what I mean by that is not, not canceled as a human, not canceled <laughs> off the face of the earth, right. but removed from, from some position of influence where they have used that position to exploit others. Yeah. So Spacey was apparently hitting on young actors. Right. This guy does not belong as the head of the Shakespeare Society, whatever the hell that was. Right. He doesn't belong on a film set. He doesn't belong directing anybody. <laughs> but that, he, is, he has demonstrated that in a position of influence and power, he cannot be trusted, that he has acted abominably. Okay. Mm. On the other hand, uh, who is the young actor or maybe he's a stand-up comedian, or maybe he's both, who had some sketchy kind of date. I think Aziz Ansari, maybe. Aziz Ansari, yeah. Yeah. Who apparently, I don't really know the details of this, but he didn't he didn't pull a Harvey Weinstein and rape somebody. Right. I just think there were some things that happened that were untoward. And suddenly he's persona non grata. You know, get him away from a camera. Get him off air yes that that seems to me to be to be taking this to lengths that are undeserved I but think maybe I, I don't understand the nuances of the case no i think i agree i mean i i don't remember all the details off the top of my head but i have talked about that case with other people and at one point i did read pretty extensively about it and it was it was something like what you say it was even on the woman's own account um, nothing extreme like rape or, or anything like that occurred, but rather it was sort of, you know, he wanted to have sex with her. She was back at his place. They were canoodling. She decided she didn't want it. He ultimately, it was a little persistent and then said, okay. And she left. That's my recollection of the, of the case. But 
regardless of those particular details, your general point stands, I think, which is that it's so easy for, in a similar fashion to what we were talking about with the Dr. Seuss controversy, for things to get uh, a, a complex situation to get flattened out into a headline and then spun through the uh, various media ecosystems and then sort of permanently affixed to someone's reputation such that they are jettisoned from public life, right? And, right. and it's like, okay, there's, there's value to that process in cases where you are, as you suggested with Spacey, eliminating from positions of power, someone who has abused that power, for example. But in, in sort of generic person-to-person -person interactions, I think it becomes a lot more messy in ways that like, I guess I'm just not comfortable necessarily with crowdsourcing the enforcement of moral norms through social media you know yeah so yeah but but then the flip side still is you get folks like cuomo and others holly who use that cynically as almost a type of gaslighting i think where you know what's cuomo functionally saying he's saying don't believe these women don't believe the documents and figures related to the nursing home scandals, right? It's just cancel culture. Listen to me, it's not valid. Disbelieve the testimony and evidence that you have before you. Right. So I, I don't like that either. No. <laughs> and I guess no, but... I would err more on the other side, but it, but it still brings with it these problems. Maybe we just haven't figured out how to do this. So what does erring on the other side mean for you? So, I guess I would rather, I would rather, well, I don't know if I even believe this actually, but, may, but tentatively, I want to say, I would rather see more frequent and harsher sort of canceling of people who have done wrong things rather than pulling it back and letting people get away with things under the guise of, well, we don't know all the details or something like this. I guess, I'm not sure if I'm being clear, but like, I would rather, I, in other words, I like the emergence of something like Me Too and other movements that are calling to account systemic historic injustices. And there's sort of a reckoning that's occurring for things that have happened at large scale for a long time. And I think inevitably, there are going to be fringe cases or cases along the edges that where people get unfairly taken down as a, as part of a broader sea change in the enforcement of moral norms. And I guess cracking those few eggs to make the omelet or whatever is, is sort of worth it. Maybe from my point of view, I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Or am I, I just so. being incoherent? No, I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, can you think off the top of your head? Well, I guess Kevin Spacey is a clear cut example of someone who's canceled in the sense that they are removed from the position of power where they have demonstrated uh, abuse. Okay, I'm thinking of somebody like <clears throat> Al Franken. Yeah. 
who was accused by some number of women of inappropriate behavior. Now, the dilemma for me with Al Franken is that he, he let, let's assume for a minute that, that all of what, all of those women were speaking truthfully, that he had done all the things that he was accused of, putting his hand on somebody's ass during a photograph and all of that. Okay, I, I don't recall whether many of those were instances where he had abused his power as a U.S. Senator. Mm. And it was that platform from which he was removed. Most of the offenses, as I remember, occurred when he was a comedian. Right. Now, that isn't to say that because he's a comedian, he can get away with stupid things. We've seen Louis C.K. being canceled in some sense for doing things that he readily admits doing. Sure. Uh, but in Franken's case, there was no investigation. There were, there were procedures that could have been undertaken that would allow the accusations to be investigated. Although again, most of them, as I remember, were done before he became a US Senator. Uh, but that was, for me, that was an example of, of the left going too far, mm. of, of cracking down unnecessarily. Uh, and, and what do you think? Is that, is that wrong? Or do you think that's, is that a case where he should have been canceled? I, I think, my my initial response would be no he well it's it's tough to say it's like i don't think he should have had to resign did he resign or just not seek re-election no he, it does. He, he he resigned but it was under duress right and he kind of resisted a little bit and i think right rightfully so yeah but let so that what happened was that as you may remember uh kirsten uh gillibrand Right, came out forcefully against him, insisting that he resign. And I think this was a way for uh, Gillibrand to maybe create for herself uh, some kind of platform for then running for president. Yeah, which she eventually did, and but did not do well. I honestly forgot that she had even yeah. tried. Yeah, yeah, which is so, saying something. But the issue was that uh, I think the blame for Franken's resignation can be laid at the feet of Chuck Schumer. Mm -hmm. Because as the reports came in, Schumer went to Franken and said, listen, you either resign or I'm going to force the caucus, the Democratic caucus, to take action against you. And you'll become persona non grata in the Senate. Right. So I don't know that he really had a choice. So then Franken resigned. So I really blame Schumer more than Gillibrand, though Gillibrand may have been the the starter of this, the the ignition, the switch. Anyway, yes. um, yeah. So a case for you and for me, where we agree, is somebody like Bill Cosby, right? That that that's been adjudicated. <laughs> He's been found guilty. So I, I don't know that there's really any. There has been an investigation. The investigation resulted in a, in a conviction. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Uh, where are we? Where are we seeing canceling going too far for you? Well, let me, I guess, let me still respond a little bit to the Franken thing, because I think it's, I think it's a good example for a variety of reasons. Um, one is, I think my recollection is that 
it seemed like it was a little bit of political maneuvering on the part of Gillibrand and others, as you say, to sort of raise her own profile by shitting on Franken. Um, so there, I think there was some sort of cynicism there, which is not to say that like, again, you know, as we've both pointed out, he, he seems to have done things he shouldn't have done. And I think he probably admitted and apologized as such. But then that gets to another point that I wanted to make, which is that here is a person who's taking responsibility for his past transgressions, demonstrating, you know, like that he has a conscience and that he's changed, et cetera. And he gets squeezed out of his position of power when conversely you have folks, I mean, this was, when he got pushed out, I think it was shortly before Trump came on the scene, right? So then you have someone like Trump who almost leans into, or does <laughs> lean into the things that he, the transgressions that he's engaged in and, and faces almost no accountability for them. So, so what is actually being done when we, if, if we think of Al Franken as having been canceled what is being done? What is the outcome of that canceling? You're removing someone, an imperfect person, who's not convicted of any crime, and you know, uh, somebody who demonstrates probably the capability for growth and improvement, potential ally, etc. And what's the what's the what's the gain? What's the what's the positive there? You're establishing zero tolerance for what he did is that what's being done yeah i'm not sure if i if i buy that though you know because it's so normalized in other arenas and also many people who are not public public figures would not have to face that kind of accountability so i don't know does any of that speak to what you were yeah well I want to take issue with the left, with the Democrats, because it cuts two ways. One is that you you try to establish zero tolerance for this kind of behavior, and that anyone who engages in that behavior will be removed, which we would call canceled, right. at least from, from the position of influence or power. Then, as you as you indicate, you have on the right examples such as Trump and others. He's clearly not alone, who exhibit grotesque behavior and face no consequences at all because the right just sloughs it off, right? Or they approve of it, you know, and embrace or, it. You know, yeah, <laughs> in okay. some cases. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. So then you think, okay, well, the you see the left now is is being uh, subject to the woke folks, the woke culture, and you say, okay, but we don't want to hold the right as the exemplar of how we should treat these cases, but we also don't want to hold the left as an exemplar for how we treat these cases. We're 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 missing the middle on both sides. Right. So the zero tolerance woke left won't tolerate this from anybody. 
the Neanderthal right doesn't recognize this kind of behavior, either won't recognize it, won't own up to it, or as you say, actually accepts it and maybe even champions it as being a, a sign of machismo. So then we say, okay, but what's, what's the left supposed to do? And I think it comes back to where this conversation began. What is the left supposed to do? The left is supposed to, to exercise some nuance. <laughs> the left is supposed to, to do some investigation, not just in the, in the case, but it is to, to establish a basis in knowledge, which means let's look at the evidence for this. We want to hold politicians to a higher standard than we're getting on the right, but we don't want to go crazy and hold them to a standard that is impossible to meet on the left. So right. it's, yes, yeah, some, some position in the middle that's going to be slippery and slide around. You, maybe you take it case by case. There is not going to be any uh, blanket perspective here that's going to get us to solve these, these problems. You just look at case by case. But understand that there are going to be nuances. I mean, I remember the, the, the left, the woke culture wanted to cancel Matt Damon right. because he had the temerity to come out and say, you know, a, a slap on the ass is different from rape. Right. And then the, the woke culture said, no, it's not. No, no, you've got to take that back. And, you know, he got all kinds of shit for that. Right. Because he wasn't saying, yeah, it's fine to go around slapping whoever's ass you want. It's not what he was saying. No, that's right. You <laughs> just wanted to point out the, 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 the divide, the, right. the epistemic divide, <laughs> if you want to call it that, between uh, something that might be interpreted as playful, and not, but it's not. Right. And something that is never construed as playful and is it, and is a felony, right? Which is uh, sexual assault. Yes. There's no in between, right? There's the there's there's no scale. There's no spectrum here. That's it. They're all the same. It's all the in the same pot. I mean, that's right. just crazy. Just yeah, I, it's crazy. I agree completely. And but I do. I think it then it speaks to that sort of what I was saying about almost an overcorrection that's occurring. It's like in the face of, uh, you know, historical white male supremacy and patriarchy at, at sort of a uh, at grassroots level, women are saying, really standing up and saying, look, you know, you can't do this. That's unacceptable, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem then becomes when these all this misconduct merge misconduct merges into one you know and then and then sort of i i think it can have really counter sort of counterproductive consequences which is that if especially young men coming up today think that almost anything that they do in an attempt to um, flirt or whatever with a woman could be construed or misconstrued as, you know, sexually violent, then they're hesitant to do almost anything at all. Or uh, they become sort of, I think some may become sort of radicalized into what, you know, people call incels and other groups. Right. We, like we just saw, was it yesterday or today with the shooting, the guy that went around shooting Asian women at the massage parlor I, I haven't read the full story, but it seems clearly, you know, not only racist, but misogynistic primarily. And, and he claimed to be a sex addict of some kind. 
So right. I just, I think then, you know, with, with the lack of nuance that you were just describing, there are other effects that occur from the perspective of men that can actually make the situation worse. That's not to say that I'm blaming women for men's, you know, failures in this sense. Like it's not, certainly not those women's fault that this guy uh, went around and shooting them, but uh the, the general sort of norm confusion that's occurring in this time of sort of transformational social change combined with poverty and, you know, shit life syndrome, uh, I think is leading to these kinds of outcomes. Do you, do you get where I'm going with that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. And uh, I am relieved not to be your age coming up in this kind of climate where it's possible, I hope this isn't true, but it's possible that language itself becomes a form of violence. Right. That flirting, uh, what is intended to be a compliment to a woman or a man is interpreted as some kind of violent assault, even though it's nothing but language. Right. That, I think that's one problem. If, 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 in fact, we're getting to that position, and I don't know what's going on on college campuses, you are much more clued into that now than I am. Mm. But it seems to me there are examples of colleges that have just gone way too far in what, what consent means, when it needs to be issued. Uh, I, I, it, it's, it's beyond me to figure that out. But there was one other aspect of this I wanted to touch on. Yeah. Uh, and that is you had mentioned um, you had mentioned removing men from positions of power for bad behavior, which seems completely completely legitimate to me. My concern is that those removals may I don't know if you can hear me, but you froze. Not have. Can you hear me? Okay. You cut out yeah, for a you... minute. You're just um, freezing a little, might be low can battery. <laughs> I can hear you, you're stuttering. Can't be. <laughs> well, that's typical. <laughs> uh, the internet connection is fine. You're getting a little clearer. Do you want me to? No, let's just wait you it me... out. Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. You look fine. You froze a couple of times, but now you're back. Okay. Am let's I just back? Wait it, Am I frozen? Let's wait it out. Yeah. You seem to be getting smoother here. Okay. That's, I think you're good. Talk a little bit or move a little bit. Okay. Do you remember where I was in this conversation? <laughs> you were saying that may not, you were saying uh, holding oh, may not affect positions the high, of power the is okay. 
It may not. I, I don't know. I last I heard no, was it may not. Yeah. So I'm all I'm all for removing people for abusing power. Remove them from from positions of power. And it just so happens that most of these instances uh, are uh, examples of men, men abusing power. Okay, so right. you remove them from positions of power. But my concern is that the removal doesn't in any way affect the structure of the patriarchy. Yes. That there isn't any systemic or uh, systemic change involved here. Unlike, uh, I think it was Iceland, that when the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 hit, Icelanders said, fuck this, it's it's men. It's men who have fucked this up. Right. And uh, there was this complete overthrow of the patriarchy. Yeah. And women became uh, in charge. I don't see that really happening. I see more women being introduced in positions of influence. Right. So we see that in Hollywood, uh, in particular, where I have uh, two boys, two sons actively involved. But that's my concern. We're just moving along piecemeal. And I don't know how you translate uh, these instances of bad behavior into something that justifies uh, toppling the patriarchy. Right. Toppling one of the one of the hierarchies that you that you are concerned about. Right. But I think that's got to be done. I think that's part of the problem yes. that we have. Uh, we have created these. These uh, power blocks that men control. And although individuals are removed, the structure remains the same. Right. Well, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's a huge issue. And in fact, I think, well, that's that's one of the reasons why I think it's important to understand the ways in which these issues, like women's issues, are, a, I would argue, a function of capitalist social organization, certainly certainly just hierarchical organization. Because in the, in the same way that, you know, let's say... Uh, Let's say we want to that the CEO of Exxon, uh, you know, is a, is a climate denier, climate change denier. Wouldn't be a surprise. Let's say we want to remove him. We want to cancel him. Well, the next person that takes his place by virtue of that role and that position and the corporation itself is going to do the exact same shit, even if outwardly he professes otherwise. So I, I think it's analogous. And I think you can you can make the same critique that you just made across so many sectors that if there's sure if there's only you know person level change it's a very thin type of change if change at all so it's got to be part of a more holistic and deeper and transformational endeavor i yeah. think okay so let's get into trouble here okay let's <laughs> let's create some trouble let's imagine that every time one of these miscreants was removed from from positions of influence and power. That person's replaced by a woman. So right. the head of GM is a woman now. The head of Exxon becomes a woman. Uh, the head of um, Coca-Cola becomes a woman. What, whatever the, the powerful corporation you can imagine, the head of is now a woman. Is it your view that anything in the culture of that corporation would change by replacing a man with a woman? Good question. I think yes and no. I think some, 
and not guaranteed either way. I think likely there may be interpersonal social behaviors that are changed as a result of a different company culture or even explicit policies put into place by those women. So internally, perhaps. Why? Only, only if they, those policies in that culture are sort of consciously promulgated by the female executive for the purpose of addressing problematic behavior. What is so I'm not saying like just by virtue of the fact that a woman takes over, magically these changes are going to happen. I don't think that's the case at all. Okay, that's, that's what be. I'm pushing you on. Yeah. Is it more likely for those changes to occur if a woman is in charge than if it's a man? I do think it's probably more likely uh, for similar reasons to what you were alluding to with the Icelanders, that at least even if we don't want to say sort of like essentially or intrinsically that men are bad or do these certain things or create a certain culture that is problematic, historically and like in the present world reality that we have, that is the case. You know, like look at Mad Men that sort of glorified that culture. You know, that's not so long ago that that was the norm, the ass slapping, et cetera. So I think women, you know, I saw a statistic, I can't remember the figure, but it's some enormous percentage of women experience, you know, sexual harassment or violence in their lifetimes and like the, and, and multiple times, you know, in their lifetimes. So like women through virtue of their personal experience, I think, again, if they're actually acting on that and informed by that, which they may not be, we may have cynical actors that take over Coca-Cola and don't yeah. give a fuck about the people beneath them because, you know, they're rich and they're just chasing the bottom line or whatever. Yeah. And that's not why they were given the position. Exactly. But I just, I do think it is the case. And my guess would be that on balance, probably if, if we're talking about trying to change a company's internal culture, especially if that culture has been perceived by some of the members of the corporation as being misogynistic, then it's, it just strikes me as intuitively true that bringing a woman in to change that culture would be a better choice than a man. However, I can also imagine that if you evaluate you know, through an interview process, a woman and a man, it could very well be the case that you are interviewing a woman who you know, has a business degree, MBA, whatever is qualified, but does not hold the, the values, you know, let's say feminist values, that a man who you're interviewing might. And so maybe he would be the better choice for implementing those changes. I think it yeah. could cut either ways. I'm just saying on balance, I think probably a woman would be better. Yeah, I, I, I take that point. It, it seems when we're talking about individuals, individual cases, it's impossible really to predict unless you know the people involved. It just seems that if we're talking about women in positions of power and we're going to use that kind of general perspective, just holding in mind how differently girls and boys, men and women are raised in this culture would give us a sense that there are uh, emphases placed on different kinds of interactions, different kinds of values. That isn't to say that any individual man, as you were pointing out, would hold a certain set 
whereas an individual woman would hold an opposite set. That may not, we can't predict that for individuals. But right. if we're talking about the case of women and men in this culture, I think it's true that there's, there are almost two separate value systems. I don't even know how conscious that is, but I think it's pretty damn evident. <laughs> then if you add in what we understand from developmental psychology, that there are these, there are value systems that women uh, as females seem to seem to gravitate toward that are different from, from men. So I'm really basing this on Carol Gilligan looking at the research done by Lawrence Kohlberg and saying uh, agency and individual autonomy are not the goals for lots of women. It's interpersonal skills, interpersonal actions, relationships right. that are more important for women. Now, is this a biological statement? I don't know, but it's As strikes, opposed to socialized? As opposed to, yes, as yeah. a socialized behavior. I don't know, but but Gilligan's position is this is true of women across the globe. This isn't true of women in this culture. It's It seems as if there is something that is the result of biology involved here. Yes. Now, we're about to be canceled, right. sure, yes. because now we're talking about the recognition of biological differences. And that's, as, that's forbidden now. And that's forbidden uh, because you can't... I, apparently you can't hold a position where you recognize that there are biological differences between men and women. At the same time, there are social constructions such as gender right. where people have fluid identities. So both of those things seem to me to be compatible. I but, agree. Okay. But now, so now we're sorry, we've <laughs> launched off into this, into a different discussion, but my point only was to say, uh, if you only look at, educational cultural differences in this society for how how boys and girls are raised it strikes me that you, you are far more likely to have a woman with a set of values that will support uh interpersonal relationships and behaviors as something that is not just important but salient that you'd like to have in a culture. I'm just you know, going out on a limb and, sta and stating that. Yeah, no, I think I agree. I mean, that's that's what I was getting at as well. And I, I think um, I, it shouldn't, I don't think it should be controversial, but it probably is some of the biological uh, things you were pointing out and also just the tendency for sex or gender related differences sort of as a, as a general rule not as an absolute, but so like, you know, Kohlberg for as my understanding, his research on men, you know, their sort of locus of moral judgment, it is about individuality and autonomy, but especially through the lens of justice, right? Whereas women, according to Gilligan's research are more focused on an ethics of care and empathy, right? Am I, am I yeah. getting that? Okay. Right. So so if we accept that, then again, it seems intuitively correct that a woman uh, leader would be more likely, A, to recognize these issues as issues to be dealt with at all, in the, especially in a workplace, whereas a man may not even see them, perceive them, really. And also, B, to have the sort of tools, uh, moral and otherwise, to act on those 
on that recognition and implement changes. However, I think it becomes, I think all of this becomes corrupted to a significant extent when we consider sort of external factors and pressures. So, you know, like I can think of two examples off the top of my head. We now have, you know, the first woman vice president. Okay. Well, as a member of the executive, she's actively making decisions, especially related to the military, that are harming women, right? So does it make any difference that that Kamala Harris is a, a brown woman of South Asian descent who is complicit in the dropping of bombs on, you know, Syrian women and children, for example? I, I, you know, I don't think it does. Or another well, example. Okay, yeah, sorry. Do you wanna to respond to that? Or no, no, go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, similarly, who had recently Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, I always get it wrong, but here in Arizona, right? Where her whole sort of political brand or shtick was that she's this, she's a bisexual woman. I think she was the first openly bisexual congressperson. And so presumably, you know, she, through her identity, she purports to hold certain values and to especially to care about women's issues. She recently cast a deciding or a decisive vote against raising the minimum wage when I think something like 70% of minimum wage earners are women in this country. So her, her politics are anti-women in that sense. So my point here is just to say that, you know, even putting, putting women into positions of power is not enough. And even putting women perhaps who outwardly profess to hold certain values into those positions of power is not enough because I think of these larger systemic pressures and uh, sort of effects. Yeah. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, I think those are two, two very good examples. Uh, although a, a cinema, I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think that, I think she has created for herself uh, some immense problems because they, that some of the decisions she seems to be making or positions she seems to be holding appear to be incompatible with positions and values she used to hold. Now, maybe she has ways of justifying these changes that it's maturity. She used to be in the growth. Green Party. She was in the Green Party. Yeah. Yeah. And now maybe she she thinks that uh, in order to really effect change, you have to be willing to back off these positions that are perhaps too extreme. The concern is, however, that she has had a taste of power, understands that if she remains in the center, along with Joe Manchin, she has maximum political leverage because she is in a, she's in a position of power as the right. centrist Democrat who will oppose the minimum wage. Although she claims her position is she opposes it only as part of the uh, COVID relief package done through reconciliation, that yeah, she's actually bullshit. for it. <laughs> it. It strikes me as pretty thin. Yeah. But maybe give her the give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Kamala Harris, I also want to give the benefit of the doubt to only in this regard. It's possible that she's in the room with Joe Biden saying, stop bombing Yemen, stop drone attacks, you know, start withdrawing troops. 
end these endless wars. Maybe she's doing that, you know, right. Hold the crown prince of Saudi Arabia responsible for the murder of Khashoggi. Khashoggi again, Khashoggi. <laughs> Maybe she's the voice in the room saying that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's a possibility. But my, my concern is your concern, which is that it's almost, it seems very difficult to avert the pressures for exercising power. That right. when people get into these positions of influence and power, it's, it's, uh, I, I think they would be very strong pressures. Um, and I, I think that's just, that's part of the, the systemic difficulty we have. I was just uh, thinking about this. Someone wrote an article about what happens to people when they step into positions of power, regardless of, of their sex. And how difficult it is to disrupt those power structures. I thought, boy, that, that just seems to me to be giving up. Uh, it just seems that there are ways you could do it. You could literally rotate people every six months or two years in and yes. out of positions of influence. Um, well, as you know, I have this position on, on uh, citizen representatives right. in Congress. Selected through sortition. Through sortition. Yes. which I think would would uh, erode some of the power structures and avoid some of these problems. But anyway, getting back to our issue, I think our sense is, and I don't mean to speak for you, but I'm just picking up on what you've already said. I sure. think the sense is that both of us agree that because of background factors and perhaps even biological factors, there's a greater chance that women would be more sensitive to the procedures used in uh, business and governmental structures that men seem either to be oblivious to or unwilling to address and certainly unwilling to change. Does that seem fair? I, yeah, I think so. All right. Well, that was good. <laughs> Another topic done and dusted. Perfect. Agreed. Agreed. Um, well, thinking back to some of the things that, well, we don't have a ton of time, so, but we can start Another thing, um, what did I mention at the outset? Psychedelics and psychedelics, your concern uh, about the golden rule, right? Um, do either of those grab you? Or have well, any... if I were currently on psychedelics, I would be very happy to talk about the golden rule. Uh, <laughs> so, the golden rule, I think we can we can handle pretty quickly. Okay, I think because I said. The... I think you paraphrased. My position is saying I said it was bullshit. Yeah, something I, like that. I think that's a fair summary. <laughs> but my let me before you begin, my let yeah. me tell you what my why I was a little surprised just briefly because my the way I view the golden rule is it's essentially synonymous for love your neighbor as yourself. And and that I thought for you was like a central pillar of cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitan identity. But maybe I'm misremembering your work. No, no, no. You got that part exactly right. If that had been on your license plate <laughs> or the bumper sticker, wherever they would have, it was, it was the license plate, right? It was on yeah, the actual yeah. license plate. Yeah, that was one of the choices the state, state gives you. State sanctioned, yeah. <laughs> right. If it had been love, love thy neighbor as yourself, I would go, hey, I'm all in. The problem with the golden rule I have is it, it's a small problem. 
And that is the golden rule says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, we know that there are plenty of shitbags in our culture right. who want people to do to them all kinds of heinous nonsense. Sure. And so they then say, well, I'll follow the golden rule. I'll do to them what I want them to do to me. Mm. And it may be behavior that's unacceptable. The golden yes. rule doesn't say anything about, oh, hang on, check that behavior first. If it said that, I would be all in. Yeah. So for me, um, th there isn't any rule that I, I think is going to be inviolate and perfect. <laughs> but what the rule that gets closer for me comes from the story of Rabbi Hillel. Do you know this story? Uh, I know his name, but I'm not sure which story you're talking he, he was, about. He was challenged by, I think, a member of his congregation or his temple to stand on one foot and recite the essence of the Torah. And Rabbi Hillel said, do not do to others what is hurtful and hateful, what you know to be hurtful and hateful in your heart. Hmm. Okay, now I think that's coming very close to the golden rule. But what it says is the things that you as a person recognize are hurtful and hateful don't do them. Don't yeah. do that to another person. Don't Some, hurt somebody, basically. Don't, don't hurt don't somebody. Don't knowingly hurt someone. Yeah. yeah or, or act hatefully toward that person. Now, you can come back and say, yes, but people differ in their interpretations of what's hurtful and hateful. I said, that's irrelevant. Right. In your heart, you hold some notion of what's hurtful and hateful. It may not jibe completely with my wife's view or one of my son's views, but that doesn't matter. You hold a conception of that. You hold feelings about that. Don't do those things. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So at least act on your, what your view of hurtful and hateful things are, even if yeah. that view isn't perfect or complete. It's imperfect or complete, or maybe as extensive as you'd want it to be. Right. However primitive it might be, just don't do those things. That, that to <laughs> me, is a better is a better rendering what I think the golden rule is trying to get at, but leave some openings that I'm not comfortable with. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Okay. I, and I, and I take your critique, you know, I, and I, I would prefer it sort of love your neighbor as yourself as well. I just think that in general, the sentiments are quite close, but certainly there are sadists and others out there who would say, you know, okay, I'll treat people like shit because I yeah. either don't care or actively enjoy when people treat me like shit. So yeah, I really, really want to be tied up and punched in the face. <laughs> right. So I guess that means it's okay for me to do that to other people because that's really how I want to be treated. I, I, that's extreme, of course. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's running away from the, the, the sort of the essence or the intention of the golden rule. I just don't like the formulation. Yeah, it's, it's, it leaves too many openings. It's a little too slippery for me. I want to, <laughs> you know, it's the the uh, Rabbi Hillel is is for me pretty is much clearer. That's fair. I guess I'm thinking more now about that love your neighbor as yourself. And do you think that that's do you think that that's better? I mean, I know you. I I think that I know that you think this, but I'm asking anyway. Do you think that that's better and sort of more powerful as a moral principle 
because of its emphasis on identity and especially the way that it sort of plays into and and makes positive use of the average person's sort of egocentrism like they're you know they care about their own well-being above all others and all else so if they can think yeah love my neighbor as much as i love myself that's kind of the a more potent message yes uh if only because it has the word love in it is <laughs> key. Um, because remember, Rabbi Hillel is, is telling you what not to do. He's not telling you how, but by restraining yourself and refraining from doing hateful, hurtful acts, you are showing compassion and I think concern for another person, which may not attain the level of love. The slippery part, of love thy neighbor as thyself is there are plenty of people who are full of self-loathing who hate <laughs> themselves but the the idea of love gets over that what whatever regard yeah. you have for yourself however little you think of yourself that tiny speck of respect or affection or concern or love is what you should is how you should think of your neighbor right so the the term love i think helps us overcome the self-loathing <laughs> but for me, uh, the, the, the biblical aspect of this is not just love thy neighbor as you love yourself. It's love thy neighbor as if your neighbor were yourself. Right. It's not an equivalent amount of love you give to someone else. It's that that other person is you. You are not, you are not divided. You are not split. You are not separate from one another. That other person is you. Uh, and I can't remember, there, there is a passage in the Bible where Jesus says something about, um, about his right arm. You would, you, you would know more, you would, something like you would no more consider hurting your neighbor than you would consider damaging your right arm or cutting off your right arm, something like that. Uh, I vaguely recall that now that you phrase it that way, yeah. Something like that, but it, but but it's that sentiment I think that is so important. But it for me, it's the, it's the love aspect. Um, yeah, and when I yeah. think like that's part of the power too, like not just the love, but also, uh, the power of that sort of sentiment and and sort of dictum is that it can, if properly understood and uh, sort of actualized, it can then expand one sense of identity in the way you were just describing so that it's so that you come to sort of embody that sense of unity uh, it, instead of it being sort of a transactional thing like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, give to charity or volunteer at a soup kitchen or whatever, just for the sense of helping this other person. Instead, like you actually come to view yourself in some significant sense as being in in need yourself you are that person in need so you're not helping some other person who's separate from you right right you are you're helping yourself essentially right because there is no real division there. there's no there's no separation yeah yeah and and it work it, it has a twofold effect it seems to me people can uh attain a level of of identity 
where they see there is no separation between them and others. But it seems to me it's also possible to take a step back from that and treat other people as if they were you. In other mm. words, you're not at the level where you see them as you. You are at a level where you recognize that they are persons and you want to treat them as if they were you. All right. So imaginative, so, imaginatively placing yourself in their shoes. like a Right. Exercise your empathy, right? Yeah. Your empathy and putting yourself in their place and, and recognizing that uh, they are not just a fellow human being. They are, they are you in this, in the, their, their essence as a human. Right. So if you look at the, at the Buddhist tradition and look at Buddhist meditation, the initial practice is to follow your breath. I don't know if you're familiar with Buddhist meditation. A little. Okay. So, but not as so, much as you. So in, in any of the practices, unless you're advanced, you start by, by paying attention to your breath and you are uh, called back to your breath. So when you find your mind drifting into thoughts, you come back to your breathing. But while you're doing the breathing, there is another program going on in, in your mind. And that program is to simply observe your thoughts. Don't look at them as your thoughts don't think about them as the pain in your right arm. Don't think about them as the, the itch you have on your left eye. These are just experiences. These are just phenomena that arise. And you right. are there to observe them as if they were not yours. And this is just make-believe. This is just a, a, a program of acting as if something were different. And it is uh, equivalent to what we were just talking about which is that you treat other people as if they are you. You're not at a point where you recognize or, or identify them with you or you with them. You're not at that, that perspective yet, but you, you pretend to be. So you, in the Buddhist practice, you fake it till you make it. You keep, you keep observing your thoughts and your uh, pains and stomach grumblings and lack of comfort with your legs crossed as if you were just observing them independent of you. And at some point, uh, you rise to or awaken to this notion that there is a consciousness independent of all of this that is just the witness, the observer. Right. Right? Uh, now, that's slightly different in that it seems as if you are creating a gap, right? that you are distant from your own thoughts and imaginings, but that's not that's not the phenomenon. That's not what what the experience is about. It's the same experience as recognizing, as coming to recognize that other other persons are not separate from you, that they are they are you. Right, right. You, I think you know you're describing sort of uh, disembedding from the. Uh, you know, the idea that your consciousness is located behind your eyes, right? I think that's Jack Angler's phrase. Yeah. Uh, and instead, um, take, like you say, taking that step back and then observing yourself and other phenomena from that, I, I don't know that we would say detached perspective, but maybe not unattached is better right, or something. Right, right. Not detached, yeah. but unattached. Right? Yeah. And 
and resting in that until things start to melt away through practice, I think. Right. You know, and then, and then you sort of, then you're, then you're there more of the time or even all the time. Um, and I think that's, I mean, this may cross over fruitfully with uh, the topic of psychedelics, because I think for a lot of people that the usage of psychedelics is, is the first or even only way through which they achieve something like this state um, through ego death or whatever. Right. You know, it's right. Temp- right. Right. And I listened to this talk that Ken gave, Ken Wilbur gave, um, where someone asked him a question about ayahuasca. I'm not sure if you and I discussed this clip, but, uh, you know, Ken speaks about it for a few minutes, but the guy says, is asking like, you know, is the usage of ayahuasca, like, do you think that that's valid? Do you think that's a good spiritual um, tool or whatever? And, and that's sort of what Ken says. He, he basically says it is just a tool and it can maybe give you some temporary insight but it can it only brings you at best to a, that temporary state of being not a permanent stage of being right and so it can be helpful in that way right um but so but i mean that's that's one of the reasons why i think uh, i'm i'm happy to see the move towards legalization of psychedelics i know you and i've talked about this like all the research being done at johns hopkins and elsewhere i think you wanted to get in on that for a while <laughs> tried test subject for MDMA, <laughs> but it was um, uh, psilocybin. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was rejected. Oh, wh- were you? Yeah. Did you actually apply? <laughs> yeah. And oh, I had, wow. an, I had an interview, Damn. but uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I was the to... wrong, I did, was doing the wrong kind of meditation. They, well, they wanted mindfulness meditators. Uh, and that you're was, transcendental, right? Yeah. And I do. Yeah. I do something different. So. Okay. I was out. Out. That's too bad. Um, but th- just to tie this together a little bit, to, um, what I want to say. Yeah, I think that there, I think if you examine the history, and uh, did you read Michael Pollan's book? About, I did. Yeah. So if you look at that history, he lays it out very well. Like there was a real political agenda in the criminalization and demonization of psychedelics. It was not an accident. Um, no. You know that that these substances, many of them naturally occurring, were outlawed and you know transformed into taboos, and I I think there could be profound political implications through the legalization and widespread use of psychedelics in a in a, a meaningful sort of serious and therapeutic way, not as like a party drug or whatever, although, you know, maybe there's a place for that recreationally, but the transformations of consciousness that could occur uh, such that like for, to, to connect with something that we were saying earlier, maybe if you have a change in identity facilitated perhaps by psychedelics, you would not end up with the woman who is willing to uh, sacrifice her principles and concern for other women in pursuit of power and wealth, you know, that, that would be incompatible with the type of person that she would be. I'm just picking yeah. that off the top of my head. Cause we talked about it, yeah. but you, you get what I'm saying? Well, I have a, a lot to say about the use of psychedelics and we probably don't have time to do it. <laughs> yeah, true. But we don't, 
But let, let me just give a quick uh, overview of my perspective because it it uh, coordinates with yours, I think, very strongly. Okay. As I mentioned that during our first encounter, uh, I grew up, I went to college on the cusp of the change between the frat party sock hop 1950s, early 60s, to the free love psychedelic era. So I had my my feet literally in those two worlds. Uh, we only use drugs recreationally. <laughs> we had no interest in expanding. Well, we wanted to expand consciousness, but we just wanted to have fun. We were just doing it to party. Sure. And uh, but but it's inescapable that you can't control what's going to happen. Right. So once you've ingested one of these, you don't you don't know what's going to go on. But of course, as we you, now, if you try to control, it's going to be worse for you. <laughs> I think it, it, it <laughs> might be a bad trip. It might be. <laughs> But because the what they've now discovered, the set and setting are so important because we were in the setting of partying with the mindset of partying, that, that's pretty much what we were getting out of it. But there would be these moments, these, these uh, ineluctable moments of insight that you could then push aside. But at the moment they were occurring, they were just magnificent. Well, what's happened now is that because researchers have gotten interested in using psychedelics for uh, important therapeutic uh, reasons, they've studied the level of dosage and the and the set and setting for these that will enhance whatever the target opportunity or mission happens to be. So, as as you know, there have been studies going on at Imperial College in London. You mentioned Johns Hopkins, NYU, a couple of other places where they're looking at how to help people with returning vets with PTSD, right. how to help people who have been through other kinds of trauma, how to help people who are deeply depressed, uh, how to help people uh, who are either in the throes of a terminal illness or have come out of a terminal illness, but are terrified of a recurrence. And because they're so good at this, they know, they know how to kind of target the self and get you into, get you into a, an experience of what you described, Rory, and Michael Pollan describes as ego death. Right. Well, there are a couple of other ways that you can attain that. One is uh, through meditation, which often takes, as you were alluding to this, um, many years or many sessions, meditative sessions. And another is uh, near-death experience, right. because people who come back from those, regardless of what you think they have seen and how that, that site is manufactured, how it's created, whether it's something that happens within the brain or something that happens independent of the brain, which I happen to think. Right. The, the after effects of those experiences are profound, I mean, deeply profound. So the people reporting near-death experience come back and radically alter the lives they were living. They give up their nine to five job. They stop the rat race for money and, and, and reputation. They completely change how they see the world. And so much of it involves what we were just talking about, a connection with other people, uh, the importance of love as 
as a factor in living a life of service and devotion. Uh, and these are not people who are pretending. These are people who are actually living that out. And the same thing happens with people who have, who have um, profound mystical experiences, either through meditation or through the use of drugs. So I'm completely in accordance with you about the importance of psychedelics for a human growth and for psychological development, for moving, moving to a new stage. And it's true that, that, that the psychedelic can give you that insight, but you are gonna go off the drug. At some point, your brain is gonna to return to a different kind of state. Right. And whether the afterglow of that experience is gonna be profound enough to have you alter your life or alter your worldview depends upon the person. Uh, but there have been plenty of people uh, who have decided that LSD, for example, is the way to go. And they've had hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of trips <laughs> in trying to capture something. But you always come down, right? You always, that, that, which is not apparently the case with the near-death experience or the case with um, a mystical experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it depends on so many factors, right? And, and the process, the, the post-trip process of integration is, is, I think, key as well. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is another reason for the the therapeutic setting yes which, which is really important for integrating that because if you take a drug on your own for example like dmt right the duration is 15 minutes long the duration of the experience is 15 minutes long well you're getting smacked in the face with things sometimes terrifying <laughs> sometimes sometimes elevating and glorious but you don't have time to process it no right you can't and when you're done with it you hope you're in a setting where somebody's going to be able to to help you process that. But you're right. That that's that's the beauty of the research setting, where yes. they are really helping you integrate what what you've just experienced. And I'm gl I'm glad that that's the case that they're doing it that way. I mean, certainly the some of the research that I've read, they're very um, you know cognizant. The researchers are very cognizant of the importance of that sort of holistic approach. It's not like you know, probably other pharmaceutical research where they just come in, they do it and send, you know, give them 50 bucks and send them on their way. Right. It's a, right. it's a little more comprehensive. Um, and yeah, you know, it's like, I, I think you've written about this. I'm sure you've at least alluded to it. I know Ken has too, but the, it's the, the idea of the peak experience, right? Was right. that Maslow's term? Originally? That's Maslow's term. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so you can think of that in two senses, P-E-A-K and P-E-E-K. And uh, it's like both. Sneak. Yeah, and it's both, yeah. exactly. So, so whatever gives you that peak experience, which can come on spontaneously, as I know you've written about, somebody right. getting on a bus or climbing a mountain or whatever, suddenly has this transcendental quasi-psychedelic experience. And uh, it, so it's very high and also gives them a preview of what's to come, but you have to follow through on it, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make afterwards. Yeah, you, you need, that's right. You, every, every spontaneous experience is a peak experience, a P-E-A-K. The psychedelic experience is a P-E-E-K right. experience because you are, it's, it's not something that's coming organically. It's not arising organically out of out of you, out of you, in some way, it is something that you have ingested externally and put into yourself that then causes this this experience to unfold or occur. 
Right. Uh, but Maslow, I also wrote about this, Maslow introduced something he called the plateau experience, where the concern was that people were having peak experiences and it's related, often related to the flow state. I wrote about it in, in my own experiences with sports, but people get into the flow state, but you can't control it. You, you, can, you can neither induce it nor end it. It just, it just has a life of its own. He found that there were people who had repeated peak experiences and at some point got to a plateau where the experience never went away. Right. And so it's, it's very much like um, people who have spontaneous meditative breakthroughs where, where they're not meditators. They just suddenly have a realization, as you were calling it, a transcendental realization. And one of the most famous examples is uh, Byron Katie, who is a woman who has, I guess, a massive following. But hers was, I think she was a, a chronic alcoholic. And I just remembered that there was something of story about she woke up on line, passed out on the floor mm. uh, in some room, a flop house of some kind. And she saw a cockroach going across. She woke up to see this cockroach going across the floor and boom, had an awakening. Uh, they, they, wake you up. Yeah, it's but it's unpredictable, right? It wasn't right. an awakening. I got to get away from the cockroach. <laughs> right. Or boy, that looks tasty. It was it was an, a sudden a transcendental awareness of the oneness of the universe, of the world, of life, of you, of everyone, which right. never went away, never dissipated. Uh, it was completely un, unplanned for and unstructured. Now, how often does that happen? I don't think very often, um, but it's possible. And that would that's that's a, a blast, as you were saying, from a state to a stage to a state or a state to a stage. State to a stage. Stage is permanent. Permanent. I think, yeah. Right? So that, yeah. Yeah. So you have these multiple these multiple experiences where you're in a state and then it blasts into a stage. Right. Solidifies. Yeah. Well. So the next time I have a whole talk about the law and psychedelics and what the hell happened. Oh, good. Good. That's because that's, I, yeah, we can, we'll, uh, we'll pick up that conversation in the next session because I've recently heard a term, um, psychedelic exceptionalism, which is, if you're not familiar with it, the idea I'm that, not. yeah, I, I wasn't either. And, um, it's just the idea that like, it's a very current idea that now psychedelics are becoming normalized and accepted. And like, it's fine to, for people to be publicly, open about their psychedelic usage relatively fine compared to what it was yeah but also importantly in contrast with other drugs uh for example heroin or you know to take a, a an extreme example but so that's the psychedelic exceptionalism or the privilege and the idea is you know it's like wealthy white guys talking about their psychedelic usage and you can't have you know your average black person talking about their usage of crack cocaine or something but I just want to raise this uh, uh, something that we can begin with next time. Also, recently, did you hear about uh, Carl Hart, the neuroscientist at Columbia? He's a black man, and he recently published a book. I'm I'm forgetting the title of it, but he he sort of publicly opens up about his recreational heroin use, as well as other drugs, and so it's his attempt to sort of normalize. The usage of any drug in moderation, responsibly, et cetera, et cetera, on, an, on a case by case basis to say, look, right. it's all bullshit that, you know, heroin or ketamine or whatever is 
the bad drug as opposed to marijuana or psilocybin. There, any drug can be irresponsibly used, et cetera, et cetera, which is not to say that there are not different objective effects and potentiality for addiction, et cetera, et cetera. He goes into much more nuance than I could, but just wanted to mention that also, because I think, I think it's important to engage in that when able speak openly about these kinds of things. So, Yeah, I, I see no problem with speaking openly about these things. I, I think I would have some pushback, um, but I, I don't know his position. Uh, and I don't, yeah, but we can, we can discuss that next All time. Right. That's next time then. Cool. Yeah. All right. Talk to you then. Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes.